what I found through doing a lot of work in this space is companies that de-silo and work on de-siloing and put methodologies like RevOps in place, which is a method to de-silo your teams. What ends up happening is that you get more dollars out of each customer because the customer doesn't use their goodwill in the buying process. And thus, they're willing to take you to another department, buy more licenses, sign a multi-year agreement. These are all the things that people should look for for successful implementations of revenue operations. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello and welcome everyone to the Revenue Insights podcast. This week, we're joined by Jason Reichel, the CRO of TrustLayer. He's also an advisor at Breadcrumbs and also one of the co-founders of GoNimbly as well. So Jason has had a glittering career from marketing to product to RevOps and is now a CRO. So Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. So Jason, uh, I've obviously been having a look back at a lot of the stuff that you've kind of done, a lot of the stuff that you've talked about online and I've heard a lot about what you've done at Breadcrumbs, heard a lot about what you've done at GoNimbly, but what I'm kind of intrigued about now is this journey that you've now taken to TrustLayer, where you're now in the role of CRO. So would love to hear a bit more about what that journey has been like and what's kind of taking you there. So I started my career, and you mentioned this, and as a product person in SaaS companies, right? And that's really where I think that I developed a lot of my RevOps principles is by being a product manager. So I brought a lot of the principles of building a product over into revenue operations. And when I started popularizing revenue operations, that was a key component, which is things like roadmap and things like prioritization, things that I saw my sales ops teams not doing or marketing ops teams not doing. And thus everyone was kind of like scattered all around, right? And so when I started Go Nimbly, when I was the CEO of that company for six years, and we grew it pretty substantially, and worked with a lot of organizations, very large enterprise organizations. So when RevOps first came about, it was really about these large organizations not getting the change they needed to hit their goals. So I thought RevOps was for everyone, and it is. But enterprise companies already had a sales ops team, already had a marketing ops team. There was something to unify, and there was a lot of work to be done in those organizations. So some of the companies that we worked with were like Twilio and Zendesk and PagerDuty and all these kind of really big tech names. Those are really huge companies. And even when we worked with them, we worked with Twilio before they IPO'd, but they were still relatively large organizations. And so it was about influencing them methodology-wise, giving them insights to kind of move the needle. Not all of them in one day became revenue operations companies, right? But they used GoNimbly and they used my principles in order to start to have a more holistic picture of their work. And that really helped those organizations. And I really enjoyed being CEO of GoNimbly. But when COVID hit, it was very clear to me that the funding space in tech was going to change dramatically. And I became kind of obsessed with wanting to take the principles that I had developed for large enterprise organizations and go in the field and actually practice those. So I first went to Breadcrumbs and helped uh, raise money with them and set up their revenue go-to-market. And then I met him one day, John Four from TrustLayer, who is a Silicon Valley guy. But during COVID, he started this company and moved to Florida. And I was talking to him and he really wanted to operationalize his team 
and they already had a good amount of funding. And so it seemed like a very good place for me to go and test my philosophies at a Series A organization. So jumping on at Trustler at Series A, helping build out what it looks like to have sales, marketing, customer success actually owned by the CRO. So I own those departments and set up a revenue operations team and really help scale that organization. And what I found are some of the principles that I developed for enterprise rev ops worked in a smaller organization or in an earlier organization, and some didn't because some things in an early organization when you're trying to find product market fit don't need to be operationalized, right? And they need to be loose and they need experimentation. They need a lot of things that at a larger scale in RevOps is really about operationalizing what's working and trying to spread that out and scale it. Doing all of this because I really believe in revenue operations and I want to find where the bounds of it are. Where do silos actually start in organizations? Do they start as Series A? Do they start before a company's ever created? Are they in our mindsets? Are they in the way that we function? One thing that was really apparent to me when I worked at Go Nimbly and I would interview people for my own podcast, Kill Your Silos, was that every leader I spoke to said, man, I miss the days when we were all wearing multiple hats and doing all these different jobs. And it was so fun and it was so exciting. And everybody was happy, even though they were working 80-hour weeks. And now we have this funding and we are successful, but what the fuck? Why are we, why am I not having fun anymore? This is a common story and trope. If you're hanging out with other entrepreneurs in tech and you're sitting around talking, they miss that experience of kind of being a generalist and kind of knowing what's going on in their organization. And for a long time in Silicon Valley, there's been this misnomer around as you scale your company, put people into very specific roles, give them specific jobs, which is kind of what people naturally want after they go through the building of a startup and it's so chaotic and crazy and all this stuff, but it actually hurts the creativity of the organization and overall the focus on the buying experience of the customer. So that's a long way of saying why CRO is because I really wanted to put these into practice at the leadership level. I wanted to show an organization and demonstrate a CRO who's not only focused on sales, but focused across sales, marketing, customer success equally and believing that all of those parts touch the customer. And I wanted to understand about where silos show up. So those are the three reasons why I decided to take a CRO job at an organization. So do you think that the kind of future like career trajectory for RevOps professionals is towards the point of becoming a CRO? Is that why you're kind of trying to prove it? I don't think so. I don't think that's where it has to go. Like all disciplines, RevOps is becoming this very large thing with lots of meaning to it. You can have technical RevOps people. You could have more business-savvy RevOps people. You could have analytical people joining RevOps now. You have all sorts of different, what I call, core talents joining. I really believe that people should be, I don't know if you know what NDO is, but it's a a think tank. And they believe in the T-shaped person. I really believe in an E-shaped person, which is that most people come to me with one skill developed. And then we try to find the other two skills that are going to make them an E-shaped person, make them more of a generalist. But even when you're more of a generalist and you start to expand, you realize that like that might not lead to the desire to be an executive, right? That being said, I do think it's important that CROs today really focus on elevating RevOps or operations within their go-to-market team to the same caliber as their sales team or their marketing team. So I do think it's an imperative thing that CROs today, regardless if people they come from RevOps or not, elevate that department into its own function and treat it like it's its own function and not support service or an auxiliary service for its go-to-market functions. 
So that's something that I really believe in. I think that more people coming from RevOps into leadership roles would help that. But it's not necessarily the only way to get there. So I think that you were going to see, you know, VP of revenue operations. I think you're going to see RevOps analyst, RevOps insights person, all the core skills, the four skills of RevOps are insights, tools, enablement, and yeah, sorry, tools, strategy, enablement, and insights, right? Those are the four pillars of revenue operations. So I think you'll find people kind of gravitating to one or two of those and staying in that career. And that's good because I think that my big lesson learned from going from a working with large enterprises to running a smaller team, right now my team is about 35 people, is just that you need different skills for different parts of the journey from A to B to C to hopefully IPO or selling your organization or more tech companies are now becoming companies that want to stay around and be their own thing for an extended amount of time. So I think that we're seeing a sort of a maturing of the RevOps space. So I don't think that this is the natural trajectory. If you asked me this question two years ago, I'd probably be like, yeah, the more people that can come up through revenue operations. Because when I was a product person, I saw firsthand that the person that knew the most about any organization they worked on was the was a quote-unquote RevOps person, the sales ops person, the marketing ops person, whatever that was. And usually some kind of middle operations person that just went from meeting to meeting, you're like, that person's in the me- every meeting every day. Why? And they're like, because they know everything about how the business is run. So I do think that you'll see more leadership spring up from there. I think the problem with most RevOps people and why they don't get into leadership is because most revenue operators that I know, they have a fascination with the craft of solving the problem, right? That's kind of what got them into that space. And so it's very different when your job becomes kind of identifying the problems, but not solving the problems at all. And I have found that just like developers, there are some personalities who want to take that next step and become go into the theoretical problem space area. And there are those people who really enjoy solving the problems and feeling like the work is done. I'll tell you, as far as I'm pretty senior in my career, but about a month ago, I was doing data duplication and cleaning up of our course, our customer, our CRM and all the other tools we have. And after I built all those routines and ran them and saw that number go down, I felt a lot of satisfaction. So that was that's something that you don't get all, all the time when you're a CRO of a company. You don't get to feel that feeling of like satisfaction that you did something and then it got done. So I think it's I don't think it has to be for everyone. I really want to stress that I think there needs to be some lifers in the revenue operations space who want to be the head of revenue operations and are not vying for the role of CRO. Me, myself, is just my background is to want to lead and inspire people. And so it's always led me to more executive or leadership roles in organizations. Because I feel like there is the operators who want to solve problems, but the leaders of sales and marketing and customer success, they need to be trained just like everyone else for this new paradigm that's happening. And I feel a personal responsibility to help those people make that transition. Amazing. And so I'm quite intrigued by the E-shape that you kind of talked about in terms of like, what would you say are those characteristics that ideally like people would have? You mentioned like the type of operators. And I guess now that RevOps has probably come into fruition a lot more, particularly over the past kind of 12 to 24 months, what kind of like personalities and characteristics are you kind of seeing? Well, so usually you have, so it kind of goes down the line, sales ops, marketing ops, those people come to you with some kind of baggage of their previous career. So I've taken a lot, running Go Nimbly, I've taken a lot of people who were sales ops people who were frustrated by being sales ops people because they were tired of 
doing the same work as marketing ops or not doing different work that never really aligned and never fixed the problem. They're coming to us and saying, hey, I would like to be a RevOps person because I want a holistic point of view on this. And I still stress that being a generalist is pretty much the strongest thing that you can do for your career. When you're a specialist, it's easiest to get your first job. So if you go to college, you become a specialist and you go into a field because you've proven it. But relatively soon, you'll realize that if you just go that route, it's going to be very hard for you to have upward mobility and be ambitious in, in the tech world. So I tend to find people who have one really deep skill. And again, going back to those things, so strategy. So you'll find people who have branding backgrounds or strategy backgrounds. And my personal thing is, you know, I love advertising. And so I come from a marketing background and that will be what they come in with. And then in, in that marketing background, it will be, are they really strong in brand and understand voice and messaging? Or are they really strong in conversion tactics? Uh, do they come from more of that? So even in that, you can see how that particular generalized skill can be split down. And so then you'll try to widen that out. So if you're good at conversion tactics, then we'll, I'll try to make you a little bit more aware of brand. And then the other two, I tell everyone, you need to have one core skill in strategy. What are you really good at in strategy? What are you really good at? What tools are you really good at? What tech stack do you really know really well? Uh, what enablement and what's your philosophy around enablement? Are you a person who does a series of workshops, Loom videos? Are you someone that likes to pull people in and do really big trainings with a bunch of people? What is your methodology around that? And then what's your insight methodology? Every single RevOps person I work with has a different answer to those four areas that they're good at. But if they are, if they can be good at some skill within that, it makes them very dynamic and it makes me be able to put them in a strategy position or throw them at a tech problem or have them train people or talk to executives in a board meeting because they actually know, understand the data that they're driving or go talk to the head of sales because the head of sales is asking for something. But what we really need to understand is do a rep ride and see what the actual problem is because most of the time, and this is the thing I talk about a lot, is people have this intuition of what the problem is. And sometimes they're right, but they might not be going deep enough to actually solve the core problem, right? And so I am very big about intentionality. And intentionality happens at the furthest reaches of an organization. It's when you can pull yourself back and look at something more holistically. So in an organization, what happens at first is everyone is just kind of driven by their own perception of what's happening. So they walk into a room and say, hey, something's not working in this process. Can we fix it? And someone else says, yeah. That's how that works. The second one is you hire people like Jason Reichel who have a lot of experience and then you do everything they say. That's experiential, right? And that's pretty good. And that's where most companies stop is they hire experienced people and then they just become sort of carbon copies or whatever, however it works of the previous companies they worked at. So if you see a bunch of people from Salesforce working at a new company, you know they're going to kind of operate like Salesforce does, right? And so that's what happens when you get to the experience. And then the last one is actually the most hard to get to. And I think the best organizations do that, which is customer focus. What things are actually affecting the customer buying experience? Then are those problems, right? The ones that are affecting the customers, do they match up with your experience? And do they match up with the field level requests that are happening? Because those are kind of the domino effects you're looking for in revenue operations. And so when you're talking to people who are very generalized, you need to understand how far can they go outside of that? Can they have their own intuition? Do they have experience? Are they willing to listen to the data and the gaps that the customers are presenting through their buying experience, either through a subjective way, like interviewing people, or in a less subjective way, like looking at data, right? But ultimately, those are kind of the steps in organization that people need to get to. Amazing. Let's change it up a gear. So I'm quite yep. interested. I've seen a lot on your LinkedIn. You're talking about hashtag silo no more. Yep. So tell us a little more about, I guess, the movement that you're pushing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's a movement I'm pushing, I think. Fair. So 
the whole silo syndrome thing is not something I coined. It's this thing that's been around since the 80s. And it was this guy who was driving around and he was tasked with making all these different satellite offices of Goodyear tires in America function properly, properly, Phil Einzer. And he stopped in Iowa, put his head on a steering wheel and was like, why don't they want to do this? Everyone says that they're unique, they're special, yet all of them are not, not doing, not all of our satellite offices are successful. So when you go there, the answer is there's nothing wrong, but they're not performing the same across the board. So there is something wrong, but I can't make any headway there. And he was banging his head against the wheel, looked up, and he was in front of some grain silos. And he was like, oh, everyone's in their own silo. Like, everyone's doing their own job. Which is a remnant of the Industrial Revolution when people were on a factory line. And so people needed to do their specific job and hand it off to someone else. And that's how businesses were built for 100 plus years. And he was very clear that, oh, it's very natural for us to want to process that way because we want to be, you've heard of like mastery, right? We want mastery. We we want autonomy. We want... so. If you silo yourself off, you can have all of those things because it's just your space, your work, you hand it off and then problem solved, right? But in reality, businesses became more complex as technology was introduced as when we no longer had the regional market and Goodyear Tire were suffering because they had the same office in all these different places, but they operated differently. But you extract that out and you go, okay, what's changed in B2B business? And and not only in technology, but B2B, which is the minute that the phone was invented and and the yellow pages were invented, what happened when those kind of technologies began to happen is you no longer had to be in the geographic region. We started to learn about segmentation. So if I was a company selling wood, I wouldn't just call every single person. I would call people who built things out of wood, right? In different regions. That was different, right? And that started to push us into segmentation. That pushed us into sort of the age of personalization. As stupid as it is, picking up the phone and knowing that you're a carpenter when I call you is personalization, right? So all of these things kind of coalesced. And what he learned by studying this, and because he spent the rest of his career studying silo syndrome, is it's very natural in organizations for this to happen. And there's three or four key kind of indicators. But the one, and the one that's really prevalent to me in tech, is the degree of change of the organization. So the faster your organization grows, the more siloed it will become. And so when I started GoNimbly, that was the reason why, not because I believe RevOps is just a tech company thing. RevOps is for every company. I've talked all over the country to organizations who I would never want to be the RevOps head of, but they are in industries across the gamut. But in tech, what was interesting is every six months, that company was a different company. They had to grow three or four X every year in order to meet the demands of their boards. So that means that there's a lot of siloing happening in tech. In these hollowed halls of innovation are the Ford factory line. And that's how people work. And yet these people think they are cutting edge because what they're building is cutting edge, but the operation processes that they're doing are not cutting edge at all. And in fact, they probably hold back the organization. I find that in technology, and I this might be controversial to say, I don't really care, really bad at running businesses, really, really terrible at building solid businesses because of the marathon nature of a startup. So it doesn't feel like it's a luxury most startups have, not because they don't want things to operate well or not because they don't care about their customers, but because of the nature of it, it feels like you can never get your act together, that you can never cross your T's and dot your I's. That's not true. Like I have firsthand said that you can be in a large growing tech organization and have it feel much more stable and intentional in the choices it makes than the chaotic growth would make it seem. But with no methodology in place, what happens is people naturally silo, right? That just is what people do. 
it gives them a sense of feeling like they have job security because you need that. People need security. And so that's what Silo No More is about is because actually what I found through doing a lot of work in this space is companies that de-silo and work on de-siloing and put methodologies like RevOps in place, which is a method to de-silo your teams. What ends up happening is that you get more dollars out of each customer because the customer doesn't use their goodwill in the buying process. And thus, they're willing to take you to another department, buy more licenses, sign a multi-year agreement. These are all the things that people should look for for successful implementations of revenue operations, right? Is, are these things happening? Is our LTV changing? Is our contract length duration changing? Now, people will say, well, that's because we have good salespeople. It's not. It's because as you solve those core gaps in the buying experience, the customer will reward you with more dollars for every yes. I don't think revenue operations is about higher converting tactics. I think revenue operations is about getting more revenue off each person that is buying your product. And so that's the key thing that I drive. And that shows when you de-silo, even when you just de-silo the team, when you take all of the operational people that are in these individual silos, you have no methodologies. You put them on the same team. You have them have going to the same meeting, prioritizing off the same list. You'll still see 3 to 4% improvement in the LTV of your customer. Just by doing that, just by de-siloing. Then if you bring your sales leader, your marketing leader, customer success leader into that meeting and make them operational resources and tell them you have to every two weeks, because I believe in doing operational releases, every two weeks, you owe me an operational project from your team that is going to transform the team. You owe me that. You are an operator too, because you're the leader of this organization. You're not just the head of a function. You're not just a manager. You're an operator of that machine. So what are you going to do in the next two weeks that's going to make that machine operate better for the customer? This is the question that I ask my team every Friday when I have everyone on it from all the different department heads. And they, you know, they add something to the roadmap. They work on that over the release cycle. Sometimes they have to work sooner because sometimes things take longer than two weeks. But ultimately, it's getting people into that habit of we're going to improve this machine and then I'm going to share that out. And doing that even in a group setting will change your organization. So these methodologies don't have to be so robust. They can be as small as creating a joint meeting that has purpose, that has guide wires on it. You know, I really believe in the action meeting format and that's how I drive my teams. And so there's all these frameworks. Like the coolest thing about what we do in revenue operations, in my opinion, or even running a business is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. All these frameworks are just out there for free. You don't have to spend millions of dollars to learn this. You can teach yourself everything by being very intentional about what the problem is, what framework am I going to use? Because that framework becomes the leverage. I think in most organizations, one of the reasons that people silo is because it becomes Jason has the knowledge or Teddy has the knowledge or Sarah is you know the head of development. She was the only one here that did that when we were here. So you have to go to her forever. And that person never goes, hey, if I put a framework in place or I document this or I do even something as silly as like a 35-minute Loom video, I no longer own this and I'm putting it back out there for the team to iterate on top of and to grow from. So that's what Silo No More means to me. It's a methodology and mindset of around creating valid North Stars for the team to focus on. I believe in multiple North Stars, not at once, but one per quarter, because organizations, especially in tech, are changing so rapidly. But that's kind of what Silo No More is. And, and it's giving people also the idea that it doesn't have to be this way. One of the hardest things when I started talking about revenue operations six years ago was to convince people that it didn't have to be the way that it is. And you would hear people nodding their head when I say, well, you don't really know what anyone on your team is doing. There's no way to validate that you even have a good operations team, right? Sales ops, how many tickets did you get done? Like, are they good or are they bad? I have no idea. CEOs were frustrated by this, right? And now you can look at your team and go, okay, we are 
We have the same amount of resources, but we're closing more business than ever before. So that's because of the operators on the team. Even if you have sales reps who are maturing or a marketing team that's maturing, a lot of that is because of the processes put in place behind the scenes that the operators are enabling. And it's just looking at that holistically. What do you guys say? Before you ask me, what do you guys say? Do you believe in this in silos? Do you see that in, in your guys' work? Absolutely. I'm RevOps. So I'm RevOps at Ebstar, so internally. So I'm, I'm fairly new into the business, been there for about a year. So coming in, there's no operations team. We're, we're working as a sales, as a marketing, a CS, and it was absolutely siloed. So it's almost like a, you have to kind of go around the business and almost consult and understand, right, okay, where are the problems? Where do you start first? And obviously, looking at the bow, you kind of, right, we'll start here. We need pipeline. Let's go from there. And I think a big part of is understanding, okay, how does that impact that? Making sure that I'm working with leads to operationalize as much as possible from a marketing point of view. And I think one of the things that you mentioned around go to market is probably the biggest thing that it is that you want to do to align teams all together. So around ABM and all that sort of stuff. And we're kind of at the helm of doing that right now. And I think for me, it was understanding what are the biggest indicators to where you're your silos. And I think, like you say, where you have this one point of contact that has so much insight into the business, it's I think one of the biggest things is actually getting that information out and documented and right, okay, that's yours now. You can go own and govern that and then we can we'll keep optimizing from there. But yeah, I think for me, I think one of the biggest learnings that I had is that RevOps isn't necessarily the way that you operate, but it is a it's just a lens to kind of look through. Ultimately, business models, frameworks are always going to be wrong, but you need to just find the right one or at least rip up a couple of and kind of stick them together that are going to be the right for you and your business. So I think Learn a little bit more about kind of how you prioritize and the three VCs was uh, absolutely amazing to read about. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely loved it because I think ultimately you're looking for, okay, I'll put one pound in here and I, I get 10 pounds out there and I keep an expanding it. And I think what would be really interesting to learn a little bit more about is how you apply. There's a lot of experience of being able to apply the volume, the metrics, the conversions to a sales operations unit because, well, we've been there, we've done it, we've had predictable revenue for what seems like forever now. And we're at this kind of new stage to where you're looking at that lens throughout the whole business. Do you apply that same methodology to customer success, for instance? I do. And, and kind of, I suppose, where would you start in going, right, okay, this is what it is that we're looking at, rather than kind of not as the older KPIs and metrics like churn normally that are yeah. so important, but realistically, they're not. I mean, churn and, and churn and CAC are important. This is something I want to clarify because it happens a lot. Operations, like COO, business operations for a SaaS company is critical. CAC, all of these things are business metrics. They have no bearing whatsoever if you're running a good operations, revenue operations team, right? And so the reason I invented 3VC is because you needed something that you could measure the operations team on, right? And not the business on. You know, if you have a great product, you could have a shitty go-to-market team and your CAC can be low. Yeah. Or you can have a great sales and marketing team but your cost of acquisition is really high because you're in some kind of niche market. And that's not a decision the operations team's doing. And it's not anything they can really control. So it just didn't seem like the right metrics to use for that team. So that's why 3BC. My fascination comes from the idea that everything is a funnel. So I believe in the bow tie, right? Five, I use the 5A methodology from aware to advocate. But each of those are its own functional life cycle. And I do really believe we will see a unification of go-to-market funnel technology in the next five years, where when you get to the sales process, that funnel is measured independently in your opportunity in Salesforce or HubSpot, whatever you're using. But I believe you will see the same thing for marketing from not aware to shadow intent to 
conversion of an MQL. And you'll be able to see that lifecycle. And then you'll be able to zoom even one click out. And that's what breadcrumbs is really trying to do or attempting to do is to look at the contact, the individual. And this is the thing I believe in most in the technology space. If I was investing in operational technology, I would invest in technology that looks at a person before they look at the account and looks at the person's life cycle, right? And I think that's going to be the future of all go-to-market is individuals. You're seeing things like Zoom Info as a tool, having where they track individuals from all the different jobs they have. So the meta layer, the layer, we're getting away from the era of database, right? So the reason that Salesforce exists like it exists is because it's built on Oracle. And so you need a master account. So then under those accounts, you put people. In reality, that paradigm needs to completely switch, which is people work at companies, not companies. And if you want to win a company, you have to win a person first, right? And so I think we're going to see that whole thing change. That's one big bet I have in the technology space and in where I think investing will eventually go. And the second one is in what I think is something that I've been telling people the whole time about revenue operations is this is just like the marketing revolution. So marketers used to have this bullshit where they were said like, we don't know what part of it's working. So we're just going to keep spending the money on it. And then marketing got very sophisticated. You had attribution and all of these things. And now CMOs have huge budgets to spend on technology and other things like that. The same thing is happening for revenue operations. So attribution is starting to happen. And I think there's going to be a big winner player in the company that actually builds operational attribution. So I think lifecycle management for contacts and attribution for where they came in, what process they were tied to. So imagine you could say, I made this change. And since you've made this change in this process, you've had a 5% higher conversion rate. Now, that might be correlation. It might not be causation. But as an organization, that's the same thing about attribution in general. It's not causation, it's correlation, right? And that made marketing more sophisticated, just like I think that will make operations more sophisticated. So those are the two big bets that I have that I think this industry and the space that we're all in are really going to drive. Right now, revenue insights or revenue intelligence software is still about measuring your resources externally. What did they do with the customer? I get so pissed off when I see companies like Clary and all these tools saying that they are RevOps tools when really all they are is forecasting tools. Now, revenue operators manage them. Revenue operators look at them. They're important, but they are not built for the revenue operator. So I think you're going to see a whole slew of technology targeted and built for the operator of these businesses because they have a lot of things to prioritize. Things from like road mapping software, all of this kind of stuff. So that's my big bet. And I think that's going to be what really solidifies the methodology. For now, though, I also think so. RevOps is a series of methodologies and lenses, as you said. I really believe that. And then RevOps is also a function. I don't care if we lose the RevOps function. And people are called operators, sales ops, or whatever the fuck they're called. I don't care. What I think is important is that we don't lose the methodology. We don't lose the idea of looking at things holistically, that we don't lose the ideas of looking at the buying experience. We don't lose the idea that it's person-centric. And I do a bad job at this too. I'm building a Series A company right, right now, right? Like how far away I am when I believe this so full-heartedly from my actual customers and knowing what the experience of them buying the product was is significant. It's very hard for me to get close to the customer because there are so many things that are happening that are pulling me away from that and focusing back on my team as the internal customer, right? Although my team is my GTM team is not my internal customer. We are working on behalf of the contact. And so that is going to be the next big thing that from where I sit every day and where the things that make me think about, well, I need a framework or a methodology for this. 
is like, I need to figure out how can a revenue operations team actually get closer to the customer? Where are those injection points? How can we get interviews happening? How can we get feedback loops? How can we understand what that looks like? And then how can we attribute what caused those behaviors? This is kind of the newest framework that I'm working on. And then the secondary thing I think that is important that's happening at RevOps right now is more accountability frameworks for individuals. So measuring SDRs on something more than just booked meetings, measuring AEs more than just on commissions. Because again, certain resources could hit commissions but be terrible at their job as a holistic resource. And so we're, we need to get away from these single-minded metrics that make people fail or be successful based on one idea of what their core attribute is. And so I'm also working on those kind of activity frameworks because I think that's what people need. I think people need frameworks. You know, there's this whole book about how if you work with a team, and I've worked with plenty of people who are very ego-driven, who deserve to have their ego, by the way, they're very amazing people. But the way that you overcome someone's ego is by not telling them that you're right. It's by putting a framework in place that's the bad guy or the good guy. And so that's how you actually level set. So I don't go into organizations and say, hey, I am one of the five people that invented revenue operations. I don't go say that, so you should listen to me. Instead, I'll put a framework in place. They get to experience the framework and they realize for themselves that if they do this framework, they're going to have a better result. So it's not doesn't matter what I say, right? It doesn't matter. All I've done is bring the information. They've tested it and then it's proven to themselves. And so I think those kind of core ideas are pretty critical to it. Amazing. So I'm quite fascinated of the point you were making around, so with Silo No More, and you talked a lot about the challenges that you are facing like right now. And I guess for the listeners kind of listening back to this, it's like, okay, say you've got a RevOps manager or or even someone from like sales looking at it going, yeah, I hear that. Like I'm stuck in a silo right now and it sucks. So what steps can they take at that point to start breaking out of that silo? What is kind of the first step that they need to take to really start getting change in their organization? The number one thing that at GoNimbly, we call it the silo no more workshop. But the number one thing that I would say teams need to do, if you're internal and you don't have the budget to go consultant or you don't think you need that, pull everyone together and have a meeting. And in that meeting, have a conversation about Tell everyone, bring your top five priorities. In that meeting, say what the priority is, what you hope it does for the business, and how big of an effort and lift do you think it is. What you'll find is that sales, marketing, customer success, even RevOps, if you bring them in and allow allow them to do this process, or operations, or sales ops, or whatever you have, you'll find that by item two or three, they have the same items on the list. But those two or three items, the, the thing that was two or three down, would never have been prioritized because it's not the most important thing for sales. It's not the most important thing for marketing. It's not the most important thing for CS. But if you tackle those problems, because that is actually the most important thing for the organization, because it's going to have a domino effect, then by doing the third thing on the list that everyone had on their list, it will impact the first thing and the second thing on the list for the sales team or for the marketing team or whatever. And then those that effort, because they put an effort next to it, right? So if they say it's a medium effort, in a month when you come back together and do another one of these kind of prioritization conversations, you'll see that the effort on number one has moved down a notch. It's become more in focus. So I often use effort, how hard something, like nothing we do is hard. What's hard is all of the unknown that we don't know about something. Even implementing Salesforce is, it might take time, but it's not hard. Right. And so what in reality, the level of effort tells me how opaque the problem space is. Right. And as you move down that list, you start to tackle some of those things that have cross functionality to them. 
what ends up happening is the other priorities become more clear to everyone else and, and the effort becomes more clear. So that's the first thing I would say you do. Just get people in a room, have them do that exercise. It's very eye-opening. And you'll realize that people are willing to let go of one and two pretty quickly when they see that they could get a third or fourth or even a seventh thing done on their list and it will impact the whole organization. But they never have that conversation. You never have that conversation. In fact, sales, marketing, and customer success are built in the current setup to point at one another and say, you're slowing me down, you're you're hurting me versus saying, actually, we have things in common that we all are being hurt by because what's actually hard is running a business. It's not that marketing doesn't do their work or sales doesn't do their work or CS doesn't do their work. It's that it's hard to run a business. And it becomes very clear when, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you work with your colleagues, you never talk to Matt over there, you have this offsite, suddenly Matt starts talking and you're like, holy shit, Matt's brilliant. Why am I never hearing from Matt? And so you have to force those interactions. You have to force that communication to happen as much as possible. You need to have people see other people in a new light of like, wow, I'm really glad that I have that person on the team. They really know what they're talking about. But also the thing they're talking about is something that I care about. I think that's the way that you build synergy. You don't need a RevOps team to do this. If you're a sales leader, you can call your other heads of team. If you're a sales ops field operator, call the other operational resources. You can call it at any level. Right. So you could call the sales admin. You could call the field marketing person who's doing campaigns and say, Hey, let's talk about what we're working on. Let's go through the, our five priorities. You'll be surprised in lots of organizations how people can't even come up with five priorities because they're only focused on the thing that's right in front of them. All of this stuff is eye opening. So I think the first thing you need to do is like put a lens on it, put focus onto the fact that people are not actually intentional because people are shamed by that. One of my favorite sayings is the most organized person in the room wins. And that's not because the organized person is right. That's because it's easier to go along with something when there's a plan being presented to someone and it looks like it's right. And that is the fallacy of, it's good to know that. So if you want to win, be organized. But it's also good to understand that that's why certain things get prioritized over other things. It's just because it's more organized, so it's easier to obtain that thing. So those are kind of the tips that I would say for anyone that wants to get started. Just have that cross-functional meeting. It sounds so stupid. I used to teach people in consulting who would come to me from Ivy League schools, and I would do this thing called base jumping training. And it was to teach them how to Google something that they didn't know and build a baseline understanding of that topic. And then from that point forward, that was their understanding. And everything they came across in the world for that understanding of how things work would be a durability test. So only you wouldn't go and lose your confidence or say you don't know because you know something. You have this baseline knowledge. But if what's being presented to you rips a hole in that, then you know you need to extend your knowledge and build the net. But so many people will spend so much time researching so they know something versus doing when they probably already can handle 80% of what's happening or what they might need to know from much sooner, right? And so this is kind of, there's all of these methods to teach people to unsilo and become comfortable with the idea that you're not always going to get what you need. You're not always the number one person in the conversation. And two, that there are more things happening in a business besides just you. So that's two. So there's one and two. And then three, as an organization, as a team, other people are relieving your pain if you just look for it, right? They're willing to get on that and help you relieve the pain that you have because usually it's a shared pain. Again, I don't believe that you should prioritize from individuals. What I'm saying that I'm really fond of is shipmate self. It's an old Navy term here in America. I'm not patriotic or anything. I don't really care about the Navy. 
But what I like about that, and when someone hears that for the first time for me, they think I'm saying, Jason Reichel's saying, put the company first. No, 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 no. Anything that you do for a company should be good for the company, good for your shipmates, and good for yourself. And if those, and if you have an idea that's just good for yourself or just good for your teammates, guess what? That's not a good idea. You still need to figure out how is it good for the company? How is it good for me? How is it good for, if you do that, you can be selfish and actually change the organization. So that's another quick way of just moving yourself directly into what I think the RevOps mindset is, which is as Jason Michael, I have all of these varied interests. I have all this stuff I want to do, but is it good for my shipmates? Is it good for my ship? And if it's not, then it's just a Jason Reichel problem. And it's not something that I should really be pushing for the organization. And you'll see different people in different elements, like you, a CS leader that's pushing all this change for the CS team because the CS job is hard. Well, that's not good for the... Why is that good for the company? And why is that good for the leader? Right? And it can't be because people are complaining at me. Right? So there's all these kind of like very simple techniques. It's something that I want to share more with because I think it's incremental. I don't think that you have to have this big push. I don't think that you have to go through a transformational RevOps change. Like naming stuff is important. So when I first started doing this and trying to advocate and be evangelist for RevOps, I would try to name things as much as possible because naming is a powerful thing. Now I'm to the stage because this is a real thing where people understand it, which is it doesn't actually matter what you call it. It just matters that you are being highly intentional and you're finding the frameworks and the solutions that remove that silo as quickly as possible. That would be my advice to everyone. You can obviously follow me on social media or follow you guys. I'm sure you guys are posting amazing stuff. But like ultimately, if you're listening to this, it's just being intentional about what you're doing, using a framework consistently. It will change everything, right? It will change how people perceive you. It will change how what the work gets done. It will change your customers. It will change your business. It will change how stressed you feel. It's an amazingly freeing experience. And I'm very grateful to have been part of this. I know we have to go, but I grew up in the punk rock community playing in bands. And the best thing about being in the punk rock community is that everybody kind of supports one another. It's a supportive community of people. And you would think that the punk rock guy who's in punk rock bands wouldn't be a you know CRO of a tech company. But I feel like I'm doing the same work that I did being in bands in the RevOps space. I'm trying to teach people how to, you're better as a unit than you are as an individual. You are better at knowing what kind of music you want to make versus just playing whatever random kind of music you want to play. It's just all of these things make it easier to digest and easier to come together as a community. And so that is a lot of where like the drive to want to make people collaborate more successfully comes from. You literally took the question out of of my mouth, actually, regarding like your punk rock background. So that's perfect. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Jason, let's move to wrap up. It's been absolutely fantastic to have you on and uh, great to get your insight as well. You touched on following you on LinkedIn. Here's your opportunity to kind of give a shout out whether people can kind of follow you and learn more about your journey. Yeah. LinkedIn is my favorite network because I think that you're allowed to slack off and be on there while you're at work. So you can follow me on LinkedIn at Better Jason. Follow me there because I have some interesting projects coming out in the next couple of weeks that I'm really excited about. One thing that I've been doing since the very early days of the podcast is giving my phone number in my podcast. And I have literally hundreds and hundreds of questions that people have been asking me about revenue operations. And I want to start doing a semi-regular bit on there, which is ask the RevOps evangelist questions and get answers. Because I think that one of the things that we need to do is demystify, you know, it's a no joke, demystify the space, right? Make it more tolerable to push your foot into the water when you don't have 
your company alignment, when you don't have the leadership pull that you think you have. All of these things are very critical. So I've been spending a lot of my career working with very senior members and I've decided like, okay, this is the part of my career where as an evangelist, as someone who is really passionate about this, I need to start working with the field level people who are actually dealing with this on a daily basis because they need the support. Executives are bought in now mostly to RevOps as a concept. They see the value of it. What's hard is how do I go from where I am today to being this intentional operations person, an intentional member of my team. And so I'm hoping that you follow me there and I'll be giving you tips and tricks to get there. Amazing. Well, thank you very much, Jason, for your time. Uh, I think we could have talked for hours longer, but uh, we'll wrap up there. So thank you very much and, and we'll catch everyone next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.